Hello, and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle NBs that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history. Because history has never been as straight as you think. I'm Gretchen. And I'm Lee. And in this episode, we're talking about Jemima Wilkinson, aka the public universal friend. They were a post-revolution early American religious leader who founded their own Christian sect after being reborn as a genderless spirit inhabiting the body of the former Quaker, quote-unquote, woman. We had to give that description because, uh, as we've discovered, and we discovered ourselves, not a lot of people know about this person. This was a delight for us to figure out. Oh my gosh. It was great. And, like, the funny thing is, is we, this is our first episode that we're doing on a single person, and it was someone that we initially couldn't find a lot of information about, and so we both had this moment where we were like, are you going to have enough to say? Are we going to- I don't know. What? I don't know. I don't know if we're going to have enough. No, we have, what, how long is our outline? I don't know, like, something like- 15 pages like it always is like normal like Like our outlines already are yeah we're just a couple of ravenclaws (laughs) who like enjoy writing basically term papers every other week (laughs) for no credit (laughs) yeah i was i was talking i was talking to a uh my friend shelby is always like how do you meet such new queer friends on the train all the time and i'm like i don't fucking know but um i guess i just attract them god i wish (laughs) All the queers I know, come right? to me. Uh, but no, yeah. I was talking to this person on the train who like is in grad school, and then they saw the giant like stack of papers that I pulled out of my backpack to start reading, and they were like, "So you're basically in grad school?" And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, except nobody gives me grades, and there's no scary pressure. I just right. do this shit for fun, right? And we can, you know." There's no, like, obligation to, like, get it. I mean, we set our own deadlines, <laughs> and we try and stick to them, but yeah. <laughs> it's not the same. No. Plus, it's like, we get to make our own courses. And we don't have to pay thousands of dollars. Yes. Yay. Even better. That's <laughs> eh, always nice. <laughs> so, but yeah, to start this episode, we have our first ever Corrections Corner. Yeah. <laughs> we have to make a correction to our last episode on Egyptians. Yes, Apparently, somebody- lettuce, lettuce does reproduce sexually. Um, yeah, thank you to I can't remember your name, but somebody sent us a a lovely email, email. from our <laughs> from our website that was like, um, I don't know if you've ever had a vegetable garden, but <laughs> right, right. So all that does all that means is that lettuce does produce like seeds and and it does reproduce sexually. So the source we found this in because we said that because one of the sources that we used made this claim. So when we were trying to figure out like that's kind of weird that they would say that when it's like factually incorrect and any like Google search will tell you that. <laughs> so we were thinking that maybe the source may have meant that it is frequently self-pollinating, meaning that you don't need like multiple lettuce plants in order to reproduce the way you need like for like corn. Like corn is not self-pollinating. Humans have to pollinate it, you know. Mm-hmm. So like lettuce can pollinate itself. And if it sounds like a euphemism, maybe yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's funny too because in digging around in this stuff, Gretchen found some really found oh my funny gosh. things about like what Egyptians believed about lettuce. Like apparently it was considered an aphrodisiac because the the variety that was of lettuce that was common in Egypt was like tall and like raw or tube shaped, kind of like romaine, like a phallus. So right, uh, right. and it had a lot of latex <laughs> in it. If you've ever cut 
lettuce and you see like the little white, like it's not usually a lot of fluid, but it's like white fluid that comes out. That's actually, that's like latex. So apparently like the, the variety in ancient Egypt had a lot of latex in it. So if you like cut like the stem <laughs> or the leaves, like this, like, you know, ejaculate thick, you know, it would ejaculate this like thick white fluid. And so it was very like phallic. So per, per the perfect plant for semen salad. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, we're we're really earning that explicit rating on iTunes. Oh, my gosh. Yep. So like the conclusion we came to after I found all of this was like, even if the source that we used that mentioned that it, you know, didn't reproduce sexually was wrong. And it is there. There's even more innuendo going on (laughs) in this story than we thought, because he's eating salad, which is like phallic (laughs) and like ejaculates like milky white fluid covered in like Horace's semen like oh mythology oh wah, my wah, gosh wah. mythology is great like it's like the original in front of my salad only like the salad is actually the sex joke the salad is the sex joke right like the salad <laughs> is like he's eating a, a salad covered yep anyway anyway so yeah we wanted to just start off the episode with that little our first little uh corrections corner Yep. But yeah, no, uh, bringing it back around to this week. So content warnings for this episode. We really specifically want to make a note on pronouns. Mm-hmm. A lot of our sources may misgender this person that we're going to talk about. We're, whenever possible, we will use the term the friend for the most part. But when we use uh, uh, but when we use pronouns, we will try to use they, them, even though we get into kind of dicey territory with, you know, they, them probably was not used at that time and they and communities were issuing gendered pronouns entirely. But for the sake of brevity, we're going to, you know, incorporate those here. However, please note that when we're quoting from a source, be aware that she and her will be used frequently. Also want to talk a little bit about like, as we'll discuss regarding this person, whether or not, you know, we should use gendered pronouns for life before this rebirth as the friend. So we'll kind of get into that a little bit as well. Right, right. So today uh, is a people focused episode. So we'll do our discussion of like the historical and in this case, like religious context um, in which the friend existed at their time. Then we will talk about, we'll do our how gay were they, which is our personal ranking system. And today, uh, just to be clear, when we use gay, which is like our, you know, it's our slang umbrella term, we're going to be talking specifically about like their existence as like genderless rather than like sexual attraction or orientation. It should become clear in our conversation, but we just want to say that upfront that today is one of those times when like, you know, when we do our like how gay were they, like we're not talking about attraction. Mm-hmm. And we will end with a little fun little anecdote yeah. towards the end and a couple of um, not necessarily pop culture, but yeah, they're like something along those lines, resources that you can find. And um, that'll be yeah. it. Once again, we don't have a word of the week. Uh, yeah, we were struggling. We were struggling with this one. I mean, we could just talk about we're going to tell you a lot of context about like religious communities at the time, but we didn't have anything really like specifically fun to the queer experience to, you know, enlighten y'all about. Ha ha ha. Right. Oh, ha, 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 ha. that's a good joke. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually. <laughs> I didn't even realize it until after I did it. It was great. Right. <laughs> oh, awesome. Man. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. So I don't think we have any other news. No. No, you want to just jump jump right in? Right, yeah. Before before we talk a little bit about Jemima Wilkinson slash the friend 
Gretchen did like a whole buttload of uh, research on on our our historical context. Do you wanna do you wanna start off on some of that? Talk a little bit about like some of the religious communities that were coming about in this yeah. uh, 18th century New yeah. England. Yeah, so we're talking um, pretty much right around the time of the Revolutionary War. So Revolutionary War. So 1776, right around that period, up through the early 19th century. And it really is, I think, really important to understand the certain religious communities that the friend would have interacted with or known about. The first is the Society of Friends, also known as the Quakers. And the Quakers, the roots of the Quakers are in England. They are one of the few groups who broke away from the Church of England. And the key point for George Fox, who is the founder of the Quakers, was the direct experience of revelation without the need for ordained clergy or like religious structures and institutions. So like like anybody could go up and preach. Right. Yeah. Anybody could experience God personally. Like it didn't have to be mediated by um, a priest. So they believed that God made his will known directly to and through the inner light, what they call the inner light of the individual. And it was through such inner, oh, though such inner light was still subject to group confirmation and kind of a general consensus mentality. Like someone could say, God told me this. And if everyone else was like, man, that doesn't sound right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like it wasn't just like everyone can say whatever they want. There was still this idea of like God would lead. The inner light was kind of subject to the group's kind of confirmation of whether or not that was appropriate. And an important factor here is the stress on the immediate and personal relationship with God and direct revelation to individual people. And what's interesting is that the Quakers, unlike many societies at the time, believed that this could apply to both men and women. So both men and women had this like inner light that the Holy Spirit could guide them by. And they, you know, had kind of a spiritual equality in theory, if maybe not always in practice, because I'm sure that most of the Preachers were still men. Um, <laughs> but, but in theory, women could also receive this like inner light by the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. They were known for the use of what they called plain language, which means a rejection of titles, pagan names for days of the weeks and months. So Sunday would be the first day, um, like February would be the second month. Like they didn't use what we call, you know, the pagan names. And They refused to use you and your, which at the time, many people may not know this, at the time you and your was plural, was plural address, and they refused to use you and your in place of thee and thou when addressing a single person. So they were apparently big sticklers on grammar. So funnily enough, the friend probably wouldn't have liked singular they. I mean, even if the the society of the friend didn't issue gendered pronouns in general, based on their background in the Quakers, they probably wouldn't have liked Mm -hmm. singular they. (laughs) Yeah. So the Quakers were also known for their, you know, anti-war. They wore like plain clothing. They refused to swear oaths. They were opposed to slavery and they were teetotalers. They were very concerned with abolition, prison reform, other social justice movements at the time. Jemima was a birthright Quaker, which means that uh, their father was a Quaker. Um, Mother was not, as far as we know. And by the time Jemima was a child, the Quakers would have become, you know, at the time fairly insular, and they were more interested in maintaining their distinction from society and other denominations at the time, rather than like in proselytizing and gaining new members. So all of that is like important context for, you know, how they understood themselves and their mission and all of that. Mm -hmm. The next big thing is the new lights. Do you want me to talk about that, Lee, or do can, you want to... I can talk about it. Cool. Yeah, so so first you have... So it's the... They were um, 
Congregationalist and and Baptist Protestant communities. Uh, so you have the First Great Awakening, which was a series of revivals in Britain and England during the 1730s and 40s, and they had a focus on individual piety, right? So like moral and religious behavior and devotion, worship of God. Prominent leaders include George Whitefield, John Wesley, and Jonathan Edwards. And the the difference from Congregationalists and Baptists is like Congregationalists were a, like a re- rejection of infant baptism um, other way around or Baptist 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 re- Baptists did not believe you. in infant baptism congregationalists did thank you I, look you're you're asking a Jew to talk about this stuff I'm oh my gosh like, <laughs> I'm doing this all from the backwards I I grew up Protestant and I still read these things and I'm like why the what fuck is, like, is this such a big deal anything. I don't care uh whatever but the general consensus of of both of them is that they embraced the revival mentality so as opposed to the the quote old lights who were suspicious of them and the perceived threat to authority they posed they stressed individual inspiration and enlightenment as with the Quakers, and they rejected all spiritual authority other than the Bible and the Holy Spirit, rather than like group confirmation of individual revelation. And they stressed the importance of a conversion experience. Right. And you'll see later when we get into bio, uh, into bio stuff, but Jemima, many sources let us know that they heard Whitefield preach and joined a new life, new life congregation in 1776. Yep. Yeah. That was part of what led to their expulsion from the Society of Friends mm-hmm. was this, you know, desire to be involved with the new lights. So the last one is is much more relevant later in, you know, the life of the friend and the society of universal friends, uh, which is the Ephrata cloister or the Ephrata community. And this was a community that was founded in 1732 by Johann Biesel, who is a German immigrant in what is now Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I didn't realize this this is like a long standing community. Like the the, the last surviving member died in 2008. What? Like at Dang. 98 years old, but still like this is like That's pretty was, great. Right? Went on for a really long time. So, this was a self-sustaining semi-monastic community of celibate, mostly celibate men and women who believed in the strict interpretation of the Bible and strict self-discipline. During this time, there was a frustration among many at the state-established or more formal religious institutions. And so communities like the Ephrata community wished to practice their religion primarily through like hard work, prayer, charity, helping others become more spiritual and kind of like a get back to nature mentality rather than like religion being primarily about like going to church and, you know, doing like religious rituals and things like that. So the Afrata community valued celibacy, though there was an order of married householders who helped sustain the community and engaged in the same kind of work as the celibate members. All community members were expected to assist with the work of sustaining the community through farming, industrial work, paper making, household chores, etc. They were famous for their hymn publications and had their own printing press. And although Beasel died in 1768, so died prior to the ministry of the friend, and membership was declining by the time you know the friend would have been in contact with this community especially like the celibate nature of it it still very likely influenced the friend's vision for like a a new jerusalem community that was kind of apart from the world and its own like self-sustaining you know self-perpetuating community that existed kind of on the frontier and then the final thing to point out is the existence of like other quote female prophets in england the continent and north america so again during roughly the same time period in Um, that the friend was active in the United States. There was this flurry of like female preachers and prophets in England, women like Joanna Southcott, Mother Buchan, Dorothy Gott, Sarah Flaxmer, like these, these women all proclaimed themselves the quote, 
woman clothed with the sun, who is a character in the book of Revelation. In context, it's a metaphor for Israel, but they were, you know, take it literally. Um, <laughs> who like was come to like redeem like a fallen world and a fallen nation. In France, you have someone like Catherine Theot, who declared herself the new Eve sent to save the world from the sins of the first Eve. And one of her compatriots, Suzette Lebruz, declared the world would be saved when she was, you know, had this special elevation to heaven. You have people in North America, Anne Lee, who some people may have heard of. She's the founder of the Shakers, which is a charismatic movement. She declared herself, depending on the source, either the second coming of Christ in a female form or the woman from Revelation. And subsequent teachers of her sect downplayed um, her charismatic gifts, which were things like speaking in tongues, communing with the dead, religious healings, and downplayed her to more of like a, a maternal role. And her self-perception as a female godhead was demoted to her representing like the principle of female divinity. I, I love, though, that, you know, still all these years later, right? Like, what is this, you know, two centuries later than what we were talking about with medieval Christianity and this like eroticized, right? feminized Christ. We're still seeing it. And, and it that kind of led the way and opened doors for all of these kind of female godheads, right. which right. is, I love that every single episode we end up having stuff that ties back. To various things. It's almost it's as great. if history is cyclical. What? What? Um, and it's all very mystical, too. Like, mm -hmm. a lot of these, like, female prophets had very, like, had, like, mystical or charismatic traditions associated with it, with them, which, again, is what we saw in the Middle Ages, where, like, the mystical was, was much more strongly associated with the feminine. Mm -hmm. That kind of, like, ephemeral visions and... It is really, really fascinating. Yeah. So speaking of which, many of, so this is right around the Enlightenment is also going on or on the tail end of it. Many of the, quote, rational Enlightenment thinkers considered all forms of religious fanaticism to be feminine, meaning like weak and superstitious. Boo. Boo patriarchy. Um, <laughs> but that meant like that there was a place for these powerful female orators to create and lead religious movements based on their own personal charm and charisma, because it's one of those where it's like, well, if they think we're all crazy anyway, like, fine. Might, like, might, as, well take, might as well take it to 100%. Right. If, you know, the religious and the divine were, you know, strongly, the religious and the feminine were strongly associated, that created more space for, like, female leaders, which is annoying because, you know, <laughs> nowadays it's like women can't be preachers. Women can't be blah, blah, blah. It's just... Stop, stop anyway. turning things on its head. Right? Gee, it's almost like that's an overreaction to, like, the fear of, like, all of these women gaining power. They're like, oh, wait, no. No, women can't be in that's, charge. That's not what we meant. Sorry. <laughs> this, is my so, this is my impression of the patriarchy. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good one, I think. That's what it sounds like to me. <laughs> it's just like that Charlie, like, Charlie Brown adults. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> That's like, that's what totally. happens. That's what happens to me inside my head when men are talking. Yep. Um, <laughs> so yeah, many of these Enlightenment thinkers thought that these, you know, populist preachers were using like verbal trickery to like seduce the credulous and gullible masses like the poor and women and less educated people. Um, if you can't hear the sarcasm in my voice, it's there. <laughs> <laughs> it's dripping. <laughs> like, I can't even like. Say I can, this I can with see like a serious face. I can see face. it just dripping out of <sighs> Gretchen's mouth, drooling out of my mouth. It looks like that, um, that blue goo from that like episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Yes. Yeah. Just, uh, sarcasm. Blue gushers. <laughs> That's what sarcasm looks like. Anyway, <laughs> the sarcasm I, is blue I gushers. I keep derailing you. <laughs> it's fine. Um. So 
it is, in this context, as we'll see, it's intriguing that the friend had many followers and, you know, friends who maybe didn't follow their teachings who were well-educated and wealthy and, you know, were more than just these poor gullible masses who don't know any better, as the Enlightenment would have you think. According to one of our sources, Juster says that female prophets enacted a very different version of the visionary republic in their sectarian movements, one that located spiritual and political authority not in the culturally constructed masculine rule of reason, but in the culturally constructed feminine realm of mystical power. In so doing, they provide historians with an alternate model of democratic politics that may, in the long run, have been more appealing to a certain sector of American women. So again, though though the friend did not identify as female, especially many historians who are awful. Yeah. Uh, oh boy. They're good oh. scholars. Like they're, they have they're, good they're information, but many scholars will ignore the friend's own self-perception of their gender and assign the friend to a female gender. Or even in so, one source that I read, you utilized entirely masculine pronouns. Right. Which I thought right. was, was interesting. That was yep. the only one that I saw, which yeah. I thought I thought it was fascinating that they they did something and they right. went in the totally different direction, but they still at least like went, oh, okay, well, this person clearly does not identify as a woman anymore, so let's, you know, it's it's still stuck in that very binary thinking of like, well, if it's not one, it must be the other. Right, right, totally. But it is this is the context in which someone like the friend can exist in a different way because you have you know this. A much broader movement to have women or people who formerly identified as women space for them to have these kind of movements, sectarian movements and like religious leadership. Did broader society recognize that this was a thing? That's all we're going for there. Do you do you want to talk a little bit about the re- the American Revolution? I mean, there's not. Yeah, a whole yeah. Lot, let's. But, I mean, yeah. we'll just set a little bit of context for y'all. So right. so at the time that the friend was growing up and you know gaining followers, it was during this portion of the the American Revolution like right after the large amounts of fighting were beginning to stop. So Rhode Island was swift to sever ties with George III a full two months before the Declaration of Independence, and little fighting occurred there, but the British did occupy Newport from December 1776 to November 1779. Um, And one of our sources, Wiseby, mentions, in these disturbing, uncertain, exciting times, which involved members of her family, as well as neighbors and friends, Jemima could hardly have avoided the family discussions on the merits of the colonial cause as opposed to the British, the morality of bearing arms, the question of independence and its consequences, and even perhaps cousin Stephen Hawkins's role in the Continental Congress. So just because the friend didn't see much fighting in their hometown doesn't mean that the unstable, insecure environment wouldn't have disturbed them greatly, especially given their Quaker beliefs, which really uh, emphasized non violent uh, non-violence post-revolutionary america likewise would have been an unstable social and political environment with tension between the u.s and britain france as well as the first peoples pressure to stabilize like a new union to prove its viability make sure that they got things you know quote-unquote right there was increased pressure and desire to expand territories hey colonialism (laughs) you know but but basically in other words they lived in a tumultuous time both you know socio uh, socio socio-political economically this was a, a a tumultuous time in u.s history and even if they weren't directly involved in any of it it was you know kind of in the air and inescapable right Right. And speaking of colonialism, like put a put a dollar in a jar every time we like <laughs> mention colonialism every every episode. Uh, like yeah. the patriarchy, it is a running theme. 
Um, Not a good one, but just one that comes up over and over again. So after the Revolutionary War, settlers are pouring into the lands west of the established colonies. And although uh, the primary focus of like the political parties at this time was to distribute the land wisely, that didn't stop unscrupulous surveyors and other would-be interested parties from taking advantage of the fir- of both like the first peoples and the would-be settlers. There's you know an example even from the lifetime of the friend where uh, a conglomerate known as the Lessee Company found a loophole in the law that prevented the sale of Native people's lands in New York and obtained a 999-year <laughs> lease. Lease, of course, quote unquote, quote unquote lease. Stealing of land. With the help right. of money. Yeah. And and the British and the Tories. Mm-hmm. Sore losers. losers. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, James Parker, who was one of the leaders of the Society of Universal Friends, purchased a deed that was subsequently and rightly declared to be fraudulent. And he then had to negotiate for less land and in less than favorable conditions with an actual, like, legitimate company. So you have, like... There's so much going on in the air at this time. Like the first peoples are understandably like suspicious of all of these new settlers who are in there like stealing their land. And the Friends Quaker background and the Society of Universal Friends Quaker-like society like likely helped preserve their, you know, more like better relationship with the first peoples they interacted with than some of the other settlers because the Quakers um, have a history of being much more friendly. Mm-hmm. Because they're, you know, passive, like quietists and yeah. pacifists and they, don't they, believe you in know, war. They, and... they interacted with the First Peoples without proselytizing to them, which, right. I mean, you know, say what you will about, like, a bunch of white people being like, oh, well, this land is great. Can we have it, please? You know, say what you will about that. But, like, at least they didn't try to convert them? Question break? Like, it's all like right, a- cool, you got a cookie. Woo. Snaps for not also trying to force your religion on them. Uh, like, the tiniest crumbs of a cookie. I know, right. Yeah, you could get, like... As you can tell, yeah. we are unsympathetic to this plight. No, not at all. <laughs> but you have this, like, romantic spirit of, like, settling the frontier. Gave the impression of this, there's a big world out there where, like, there's... Big empty world, empty, quote unquote empty, (laughs) big empty world where there's like freedom from societal norms. And, you know, if you work hard, we can, you know, balance out a desire for spiritual distinction with like closeness to nature and and like the spiritual cocktail outline, you know, that we just talked about. Small wonder that a non-conforming preacher and a leader in their congregation would seek to find a place where they could be free to be themselves. All of these things make a lot of sense. The last thing to note here is that these, um, interestingly, these different contexts that you can kind of locate the friend into have frequently been used as a means of, you know, making sense or locating the friend in history. Feminist scholars or those wishing to highlight, you know, women preachers, as we mentioned, in early America will locate, you know, the friend, you know, belongs in this context. Like they're like a a woman preacher. Um, One of these powerful, like charismatic women preachers in early America. Contemporaries of the friend themselves might talk about how their genderlessness was, you know, anti-republican and by republican we mean like Like the the founding of the american republic (laughs) early early not like republican right not like not versus democrat yeah not that i like that um not the elephant yeah the country not the elephant (laughs) perfect i like it and that you know this their genderlessness was also like a threat to social stability after the revolutionary war those wishing to avoid all of that or you know any talk of like gender will, um, and the celebration of celibacy within the Society of Universal Friends, will talk about the friend as like a pioneer of early post-revolutionary settlement. And it's the first 
you know, biggest settlement in New York at this time period. And, you know, you have all of these competing different ways to interpret the friend. Mm-hmm. So, so who was the friend? Lee, who was the us, friend? Indeed. Tell us about, tell us about Jemima Wilkinson. I will. So for this, you know, just this very brief portion of Jemima Wilkinson's early life, we're going to transition into using gendered sh- pronouns, um, because as you will see later on in our discussion, this person, you know, has, there's a distinction uh, and two distinct portions of their life. So in this portion yep. of their life, we're going to refer to them with she, her pronouns. So they were born as Jemima Wilkinson in 1752 in Cumberland, Rhode Island. Uh, she was the eighth of 12 children in a Quaker family. Oh, God. Yeah, it's a lot of kids. <laughs> oh, boy. In that, 25 that's like, years. That's like 12 right kids in, in 25 years. God, that's... Whew. Every other year, you're popping out a baby. So, mm. uh, I mean... And then mom died. When Jemima was ten, so that's fair. a lot. Uh, that's fair if you're if you're if basically you're pop- like yeah, a that, like a birth workhorse. Can't that, be good I mean, for your health. I don't. Yeah, that's gonna ruin your your bits and that's, your health that's and gonna everything. ruin your everything. God. <sighs> but yeah, so likely because of the death of her mother, Jemima Wilkinson did not receive much in terms of a formal education. But many sources say that she was an avid reader of the Bible and Quaker beliefs and history. And I think I even read somewhere that she was really into poetry. At about age 18, Jemima saw George Whitefield, the preacher who started the Great Awakening, like we said, speak in 1770 and developed a voracious, an even more voracious re- interest in religion. And she joined the New Light Baptist group and dove into religious studies. And because of this, uh, she she was expelled from the Quaker meeting her family was a part of. Yeah. Her older sister was, I believe, expelled at the same time too. Uh, mm-hmm. patients for having a child out of wedlock. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so now we're going to transition into this kind of new element of Jemima Wilkinson's life. So right. just just two months after joining the New Light Baptist group in October 1776, at the age of 26, at the age of 24, Wilkinson fell ill with a fever, possibly typhus. Also, there was like one source that said maybe it was an emotional breakdown. Who knows? Uh, but like typhoid defamatory that sounds conveniently defamatory I don't know this lady had an emotional breakdown and woke up believing she was someone else yeah exactly hysteria um but yeah, so this, you know, this this typhoid, typhus fever, also called Columbus fever, but it had kind of come to Rhode Island. And so after several days on the brink of death, the person who was Jemima Wilkinson emerged from a fever and claimed to have been visited by angels and said this that this this person that had been Jemima Wilkinson had died and in her place arose a genderless, quote, second descent of the spirit of life from God, neither male nor female, who was inhabiting Jemima Wilkinson's body and was from here to for, you know, here here on out to be called the public universal friend. And we have a direct a direct quote that was actually written by the friend themselves that was uh, a memorandum of the introduction of that fatal fever called in the year 1776 the columbus fever since called the typhus or malignant fever and on the fourth of the tenth month it reached the house of jeremiah wilkinson 10 miles from Providence. She saw two archangels descending from the east with golden crowns upon their heads clothed in long white robes down to the feet putting their trumpets to their mouth proclaimed saying room room 
room in the many mansions of eternal glory for thee. And so apparently Jemima Wilkinson, quote, dropped the dying flesh and yielded up the ghost. And according to the declaration of the angels, the spirit took full possession of the body it now animates. So that's pretty heavy. Uh, So like from that, like that moment onward, this person refused to respond to any name other than public universal friend or the friend and eschewed gender pronouns altogether. You'll also sometimes uh, see the friend referred to as universal friend of mankind or all friend. Lots of different variations on that. Yep. Yep. And what's interesting is that in in the Quaker community, public friends was actually a title for members of the community who felt a concern or call to preach and were then authorized by the community to travel from place to place and meeting house to meeting house preaching. So when taking upon this name, public friend was a was a title that the religious community that the friend was raised in would have recognized as a proclamation of feel a call to speak and preach publicly the it was the the addition of universal that then put them outside of the Quaker community and saying this is a universal call to preach to everyone and to travel everywhere even the idea of like a new name for a reborn spirit has its roots in the Quaker tradition and their acceptance of an interpretation of Isaiah 62, which says, you will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord shall name. So, you know, the friend's self-identity has its root, like very much like they were drawing upon the language and experience of the community that they were involved in. And they presented themselves in a way that would have made sense to the community that they were involved in Mm -hmm. as saying, like, I believe that I have a universal call to like preach and teach. Yeah. And as a sign that Jemima Wilkinson has died and I, you know, a divine spirit have been resurrected in the body of the person who used to be Jemima Wilkinson have a new name because there's a rebirth happening. Mm -hmm. And that new name like is a signal of their like new mission and that that death and resurrection has happened. One of my favorite things that I read in all of this is there's a really great website that we've referenced a couple of other times. We referenced in our um, in our Cloistered Queers episode. There's a really great, cool website called Q Spirit, which is a website that like highlights queerness and religion and queerness and like queer saints and everything like that. But there's a really great article on Jemima Wilkinson there that says it's by Kittredge Cherry. And it says, in 1776, the same year that America issued the Declaration of Independence, Wilkinson declared independence from gender i love that i just like i forgot to write it in our outline and i had to find it and it's so good i feel like every every person who identifies you know outside of the gender binary needs to like use that right like i I am declaring declaring my independence independence from from gender gender. (laughs) yes i will use that from now on yeah perfect oh man so good ah But yeah, do you want to kind of talk a little bit about, you know, now we have our public universal friend and uh, what did what did this person do the second that they shot up and declared that they were now here? Well, the friend immediately upon being, you know, resurrected um, began to preach to anyone who would listen. I believe even a couple of days after Mm -hmm. they were resurrected, they went to the meeting house that they had attended as a child. And after, you know, the, the regular service, like, stood outside, like, under a tree and was like, here is my message. People, come listen to me. <laughs> I love, I love it. Just, like, right? undeterred at all. Right. They're like, you were almost dead three days ago. What are you doing? Right? Right? Because that's what I, that's what happens to me when I get really, really sick is that I get up, like, a couple days later and I'm like, you know what? I need to give a speech. <laughs> 
I am ready to like go and like preach. Speak some truths. I mean, speak some truths. So at this time, they traveled throughout Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Pennsylvania. Many of the friends' own family members left the Quaker faith to follow their teachings. And according to many of our sources, the friends' preaching was incredibly charismatic, drew several followers across class lines, attracting both intellectual and economic elites, as well as the poor and the oppressed. One of the more influential followers was Judge William Porter who apparently, upon hearing the friend preach and uh, becoming a convert in 1779, freed his slaves and abandoned his political career and actually built a 14-room annex onto his mansion for the friend's followers to use and live in, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. One of my favorite things about that is the way it classic the way the friends teaching like crosses these, you know, boundary lines, mm-hmm. because um, especially in a lot of these more like charismatic movements of the time typically did attract people who were more marginalized mm-hmm. by society, which isn't a bad thing. But it is really intriguing to see that even those who, you know, were like, quote unquote, elites were, you know, listening to and um, following someone who I think most even most historical scholars would want to relegate to kind of this like fringe yeah you know it, this is someone who only appeals to the poor masses because you know only they would care about well it lends it like lends us. i mean in kind of a fucked up way it lends legitimacy you know right right yep yeah yeah and it is it, yeah in a fucked up way yeah in a fucked up way <laughs> but oh look all, all these poor people are listening to them oh what that rich dude likes this person oh okay cool it must be cool right must be good right right and the friend was willing to cross the war lines Mm -hmm. during the during the war like they would go and they would preach to you know british soldiers in newport and you know to prisons and it wasn't just you know they they would go out of their way to go to um executions for people condemned so um they really did cross so many different lines in just like such a fascinating way um now they're preaching blended, you know, traditional Christian warnings about, you know, sin and redemption with elements of Quaker pacifism, abolitionism, you know, like Judge Porter freeing his slaves, focused a lot about the coming apocalypse and what at the time would be called millennialism, which has to do with Revelation, because uh, Revelation talks about like the new millennium and there's like the millennium before Christ returns and all and, of that. End of the world so, kind of stuff. Yeah. End of the world, apocalyptic, you know, repent or you know, repent because the kingdom of heaven is near kind of, kind of stuff. One listener said, she do preach up terror alarmingly. I just like that quote. <laughs> I just like the <laughs> way that it's, great. you know, just like, just, just some person be like, she do preach up terror alarmingly. It yes. just sounds like a, like an interesting reflection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Right. Right. Like I don't, yeah. It just, oh, interesting. Yeah. She, she do preach up terror alarmingly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, as we said, uh, the friend preached against slavery, gave medical care to both sides in the Revolutionary War, advocated for equality between men and women, uh, stressed the importance of celibacy. That was a that was a big one. And the friend's followers began to make claims that the friend was, quote, the Messiah returned or, you know, Christ in female form, which, of course, drew ire and upset from outsiders, though the friend never made these claims themselves. Like, the friend never claimed divine status. A lot of the followers claimed divine status mm-hmm. or that, the you know, made it implied that they believed that the friend was not just a genderless spirit sent from God, but the masculine spirit of Christ mm-hmm. embodying them. Though 
the friend never made those claims. Other people made those claims about the friend. And there was even an incident in Pennsylvania That's after they after they preached where, you know, they were inside the meeting house and people gathered outside and like threw stones at the house. They were not personally attacked, but like the, the meeting That's house right. where they were in was they, you know, threw stones at it because people got mad. By 1783, the friend had gathered enough converts that a declaration of faith was composed and the group was officially known as the Society of Universal Friends. Once again, like drawing on that Quaker heritage, which is called the Society of Friends, this is the Society of Universal Friends. Now, the claim of like nothing new in their theology, this like this came up multiple times in our sources where the sources would talk about like, well, there was nothing like new or innovative or special about the friends theology. And what it overlooks is the ways that the friends public performance or like inhabiting of their genderlessness, like manifested their view of what a new society looked like and what, you know, what the, what life after death looked like. As someone who preached that Christ would, you know, was coming again and preaching for repentance, the friend was like a prefigurement of what they believe the new world order would look like after Christ's return. This is what life after death looks like. Like I have died and been resurrected and the body, like my presence now as the friend symbolically and like physically manifests what life after death looks like. And to me, that's that's pretty damn innovative. That's like, no one else was saying this. (laughs) Yeah, there were were a lot of sources that, you know, we'll get into a little bit in our like next big section that talk about how, oh, well, you know, a lot of people weren't really going to to see Jemima Wilkinson preach for for what they were saying. It was more to like get a gander at this weird person who with all these new conventions. And it's like, but that in itself is greatly upsetting the status quo. And. Right. And interweaving a theology into it. And we'll really get into that conversation, especially right. as it, right. you know, relates to one of our sources, which I've decided that my wife for the week is uh, Scott Larson, <laughs> is a historian named Scott Larson, who I want to marry their article. It's so good. Right, right. Scott Larson, if you ever find a way to listen to this, we love you. We love you. Thank your, you. Your article is the best thing that, that we ever found about it, the friend. Yeah. So anyway, like... The content right now we knew, what frustrates me the most is this like arbitrary distinction between like the content of what they were preaching and their like behavior and embodiment. Mm -hmm. That like somehow it's like the content has to be new. Otherwise, it's just same old, same old. And that's bullshit. (laughs) The content of what they were saying might not have been like particularly new, but the friend themselves was part of the message Mm -hmm. and the mission. Their person was part of the message and mission of the friend. And to only look at what they were saying is to miss what made the friend and the society that they were, you know, trying to create so unique and different. So like their presentation as being a supernatural being who existed like beyond gender, one, like it lent credence to their self-conceptualization. We'll get we'll get into later about like how they presented themselves in terms of like dress and like hairstyle. All of those things like lent credence to the way they talked about themselves as like, I am a being who, who is neither male nor female, and they presented themselves as such. And it also lent authority to their preaching, which again, we'll get into this idea of like being a, a being beyond male and female was, was a sign of their being divinely sent. And it just that's just as much a theological statement as like Bible quotations or like saying like moral axioms. That is equally a theological statement it's just that so many of the people that we're reading, like, don't 
take it that way. And it's frustrating. Like as someone who has a degree in church history, <laughs> like it is frustrating as heck to see all of these people like missing, like they're missing like, their entire point. <laughs> right. Like the Just point right is over that, the like, right. Like, yeah. Anyway, we'll, we can come we'll back get, to we'll that. We'll come back to that. I'll soapbox for a while later. We'll come back to that. <laughs> so yeah, so like moving moving onward in our biography. So by 1788, after 14 years of preaching and gathering a whole bunch more followers, the friend was convinced that the group needed to create like a place away from the persecution of the so-called wicked world and begin a community of their own. The friend dreamt of a, quote, township where none but friends hold any title or possession there upon any other terms than that of being true friends and you know like friends in kind of both sense of the world uh, sense of the word right like a like a nice utopian community where women have a sense of community and there's a cooperative existence and nobody owns land or property isn't that great and right. so one of one of the followers james parker led 25 people to a place west of seneca lake and started a community there on a parcel of land quote unquote as we said before purchased from the iroquois confederacy you know i will say like despite the super, super shittiness of colonialism, you know, they were some of the first settlers in the region and the first white people to meet and trade with the native peoples there. Apparently, according to some of our sources, uh, relations with the first peoples were relatively, quote, friendly and fair, and the indigenous people, quote, treated her kindly, and her colony was never disturbed by them. But again, this is all coming from white people, so take it with a huge grain of salt. Apparently, the friend was known uh, among the first peoples as the great woman preacher, or I'm not going to be able to pronounce this, um, Shinivanagus Taji, I think. I'm very sorry. I'm not good at pronouncing things. So they they were there for a little while, and then in 1790, they moved west to Lake Kyoka and established the, quote, New Jerusalem. Later, they, you know, dropped the new, and it was just Jerusalem Township, which is, you know, Jerusalem is still there. It was six square miles, and the community at its height had grown to 260 followers. Yep. yep. The, uh, the town Township of Jerusalem was was you know going about all of its business for quite some time until things started to falter. Um, it developed fault lines when some of the followers, including this James Parker, and uh, it's actually I think you've been pronouncing it William Porter, but I've read William Potter, turned on the friend and began disputing the ownership of the land. So all about uh, greed. Yep. So since they were saying that since they had put in the most amount of money into the like community pool, like everybody pulled their money together to buy, quote unquote, buy this land. Since they said that they had put the most amount of money, they argued that the land should be distributed accordingly. Um, so these two rich motherfuckers decided that they weren't content with living in a happy, peaceful community free of God. accumulation of wealth and property. Uh, so it created a gap, quote, between these wealthy men and the poor friends, celibate women, orphans, and sick, who, along with those faithful few wealthy folks, remained true. Is, is anyone surprised? Anyone? Anyone? That two white dudes went, I want more. Right, right. Okay. And it sucks that, like, those are, like, two of the friends' earliest and most close converts. And then they were like, eh, well, so sucks so basically saying fuck this to those dudes and insisting that quote redeeming love was free the friend took the remaining faithful and made a final move westward just a few miles and ended up you know the community lived there until the friend's death in 1819 outside the settlement there were numerous tales of like trying to slander the friend and their community telling stories about like sexual misconduct and harsh punishments and weird practices and we'll get you know a little bit into that uh in our next section but 
The friend was actually put on trial for blasphemy in 1800, but fun fact, the new courts at the time ruled that they could not try blasphemy cases because of the brand new separation of church and state. Um, So, yay, America! Which I think is really interesting that, like, this case of Jemima Wilkinson, the, the public friend, actually helped to solidify a a cornerstone of our democratic process right which yay so yeah so the friend died or left time as you know the universal friends put it on july 1st 1819 so we're almost at 200 years from from their death at age 61 and the friend's body was quietly buried in a secret location known only to the two who buried them and their descendants And uh, the Society of Universal Friends disintegrated a few years after the friend's death and like the the land was, you know, divvied up and there were a bunch of disputes and a whole bunch of stuff. And I think I think the last surviving member died in 1784. So that's that's 1884 or was it? Yeah, 1884. No, they went back in time. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) They went back in time. Yeah, 1884. So, yeah. Um, So that's that's kind of where we leave off with with the friend. And their their biography, their story. So so Gretchen, why do we think they're gay? And you know, for this episode, by gay we mean like gender nonconforming, non-binary, genderless, outside of a binary yes. gender experience. Yes. Well, the first thing is uh, pronouns. They did not use female pronouns after their illness. Most followers did not refer to them in the third person at all, using any kind of gendered pronoun, but simply referred to them as the friend. Detractors would frequently use female pronouns. Surprise, surprise. Some, like we said, one of our sources used uh, masculine pronouns because this idea of like having a like masculine spirit. And even even in modern scholarship, the confusion of pronouns for those who people who write about the friend shows a distinct lack of awareness or unwill or unwillingness. I mean, probably a little bit of both to engage with the friend's own self conceptualization as a genderless spirit. Those who use female pronouns imply that the friend was deluded, even if they don't believe that themselves. Like they're implying. Mm-hmm. That the friend in speaking of themselves as a genderless spirit, that that was deluded and they were, you know, quote, really just a woman. Mm-hmm. Having, having use... an emotional breakdown. Whoa. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Uh, like one of the earliest biographies or the earliest biography or quote memoir of the friend was horribly like slanderous defamatory like it claimed to be a biography but like that's where the idea of like they pretty much just say that like the friend was like deluded and trying to delude their followers and yeah and it was it was only a couple of it was only it was published only a couple of years after after the friend's death yep 1821 yeah and then had a reprint in 1844 so you know great yep yep those who use a masculine pronoun reinforce the gender binary and like human the human the very like human institutions that the friend was you know trying to like reject and live outside of but you know like on the one hand you're like at least you're doing something Mm -hmm. but also not you missed the point (laughs) right again one scholar even refers to the friend as um a spiritual transvestite at one point yeah and um uses you know who used masculine dress and performance and presentation not to undermine but actually to uphold patriarchal religious structures and this was a feminist writer and i believe in their in their this was in their early work and i believe that in their later work they have you know since changed some of the ways that they talk about the friend but that is something you might run into and you know once again this like denies the friend's own conceptual self-conceptualization and presentation which is that of being beyond 
and outside of male and female. It's not a transition from one gender to another, but rather like the existence outside of male and female. Um, And as such, the friend purposefully mixed their presentation in order to outwardly represent existing outside of, you know, as being genderless. Mm -hmm. Um, So Lee, do you want to talk a little bit more about like, yeah, yeah. So like everything that that the friend did to perform this this expansive gender experience and its connection to divinity was very very precise and deliberate they acted and dressed and presented themselves in ways that reinforced the image of neither male nor female an important aspect of their self-understanding as an otherworldly visitor within the body of jemima the friend was unafraid of riding in public unaccompanied though rarely did so because you know their followers are usually with them but they still rode side saddle as per a female custom likely to due to their clothing choices and speaking of clothing choices yeah so they they like i I love this because it's you you see this in a lot of really amazing gender non-conforming and and trans activists right now who are are being really deliberate in their in their gender presentation to mix different elements and i feel like this is this is such a a beautiful precursor Mm -hmm. to that so they had a flowing smock tied under the chin that looked like both like a dressing gown, uh, a dressing gown, and revealed only tips of fingers and feet, and did not emphasize body or shape at all. It also looked like a clergy robe. There were long, pretty ringlets of hair, but left uncovered, as per a masculine custom, and like a wide felt hat, like a like a beaver hat that was styled much like a man's. And there's even a um, a quoted description from. Uh, contemporary Ezra Stiles in 1782. She is about 30, straight, well-made, light complexion, black eyes, round face, chestnut dark hair, wears light cloth cloak with a cape like a man's, purple gown, long sleeves to wristbands, man's shirt down to the hands with neckband, purple handkerchief and neckcloth tied around the neck like a man's, no cap, hair comb turned over not long wears a watchman's hat every single thing that this person says goes in like was styled in a masculine way was styled in a masculine way also all the purple (laughs) all the purple it's like a friend after my own heart i love purple the purple's great the original lavender menace yes it's amazing oh man but but what i love about this is that like the masculine clothing choices are only a part of it the friend deliberately mixed combinations of male and gender uh, male and female gender signifiers combined with clerical clothing in the way of dress Mm -hmm. and like historians have commented that observers noted the way this mixture of clothing indicated the friend's genderless state as an element of their performative divinity like we've mentioned yep yeah Mm -hmm. a quaker missionary william savory noted quote she was attired in a loose gown or rather a surplus of calico, and some parts of her dress were quite masculine. As she is not supposed of either sex, so this neutrality is manifest in her personal appearance. Or, from our not-friend David Hudson, which was uh, the, fir- <laughs> oh. the, f- the first biographer. But at least, you know, he put in there that, you know, the friend was dressed in a fashion entirely her own, which resembled neither that of men or women. Right. And of course, like, of course, there were people who, you know, used their ambiguous dress and linked it to like being a religious imposter or, you know, to sexual deviancy. You have people speculating about their undergarments. 
Uh, yep. I mean, like, you know, every trans person's every trans person's favorite question, what's in your pants? Like, really? We're going to go there right. that early on? Right. Yep. They would spread rumors that the friend wore loose robes to hide a pregnancy at one point. That, like, apparently they believed that the friend and James Parker had, you know, We're doing had it. sex and, and got... They got pregnant and, you know, eventually murdered the baby because, you know, why leave it at just a pregnancy? Why not add infanticide? Right. Well, they were like, it specifically was like, and they're because they're because she was pregnant, you know, they were committing sin and having sex. The baby was smushed. Like, right, right, right. And like such. That's not how it works. Right. No. Like, but like the rumors are like clearly meant to defame the friend James Parker to denounce the society's followers for being deluded and voyeuristic, like. It's the same old, same old that we already see of, like, non-traditional religious orders of the time. I mean, even the Quakers and Catholics and even preachers like Whitefield, like, were accused of, like, you know, sexual obscenity and, you know, voyeurism and, like, porn- pornographic, whatever. Like, it's very normal to just be like, well, they're non-traditional, therefore they must be perverts. Mm-hmm. As awful as it sounds to say that was normal, like, it kind of was. Like, yeah. it was and has been throughout, I think, a lot of, at least from what I know, Christian religious history is, like, Oh, you guys don't do things the way we do? Like, y'all must be, like, you must be perverted freaky. and gross. Yeah. You must be freaky. And, like, the friend has to be wearing that robe because they're secretly pregnant. <laughs> like, whatever. But. It's, you know. <laughs> Another rumor um, links the friend with a companion who likewise was ambiguously gendered. People proposing either that it was a man dressed as a woman to hide that there is sexual intimacy in the guise of, like, good Christian friendship. You know, these ladies are so intimate with each other. They must be good friends. But, like, what if it's secretly a man and they're having sex? <sighs> um, or, you know, or you have the other people who are like, or maybe they're they're not just friends and it's two ladies who are, who are like, having sex together. Ew. Oh, God. Uh, yeah. Gal pals. Gal pals. In other words, like, people are awful. Yep. And will always find ways to defame that which is, which they consider to be abnormal. Mm-hmm. And outside of their experience and belief of what things ought to be. Yay. <laughs> right. Yeah. Not only in the friends' clothing choices did they defy gender categories, but even some of our sources talk about specifically the friends' voice, confounding people as to, you know, their gender presentation. Ruth Pritchard, a follower and friend, described it as, quote, the voice that spake as never man spake, implying a divine presence. Abner Brownwell uh, said it was very grum and shrill for a woman, noting that it was at once low and high-pitched, and grum was specifically a word that had been historically used to describe demonic voices, especially if it was, like, a perceived woman having that kind of vocal tone. She has a deep voice. Must be a demon. Ladies only have soft voices. <laughs> Ladies can't have deep voices. I just, I have never heard the word grum before. Yeah. And I kind of dig it. Can I refer like, to my voice Not the connotations. Grum? Yeah. I don't that know. I kind of like dig the new word for, a demon. Yeah, I mean, demons are. Demons have yeah, fun. They do have fun. <laughs> Ezra Stiles, again, who was uh, president of Yale, so one of those, like, educated, you know, elite followers, uh, described it as decent and graceful and grave, which interestingly applies that not all Americans were ready to either deify or vilify this kind of otherworldly, gender-ambiguous vocal tone or vocal performance. Perhaps even, like, grave as a way to describe preaching, just like the clerical garments that the friend wore implied a very a specific gender register as kind of a like presentation of the divine um, and the divine kind of being genderless. Possibility um, from Larson, from Scott Larson, our favorite. 
So, um, I mean, and one thing to remember is that vocal performance was the only kind of entertainment really available at the time, mm-hmm. other than like music. Everything was auditory. So many, you know, of the snobby enlightenment thinkers would talk about like, you know, as we said earlier, like the gullible masses for being persuaded by like unique or moving or charismatic preachers. So this like unique vocal tone and vocal performance could cut like would work both ways. Like it could be very convincing for people who believed the friend to be divine and otherworldly. And for those who believe them to be a fraud, it was evidence that they were demonic or a fraud or just, you know, trying to use these like fancy trickery to like convince people to listen to them. Which is so interesting because like, you know, even now you have a tradition of like unique vocal inflection and vocal performance in a lot of religious communities. Like, you know, just at any, I mean, I, I mean, you know, I've never been inside of a Baptist church, so I don't know this firsthand, but like every representation that you see of like Baptist preaching is so very much like the Bible up in the hand and like talking, you know, in, in a yelling voice and doing all of this. And it's, it, it is all very, like you get swept up in it. It's a, it's meant to, it's meant to like call, mm-hmm. call you to stand up and to, to come in to this and be a part of this experience and so it's it's interesting to see that you know birthed here and how i mean not necessarily birthed here because people beforehand but having that specific vocal performance being such a an intricately tied to the message that the friend right was, right uh right that kind of like genderless like utilizing what we might consider to be like gendered speech patterns or vocal tones and like mixing those two as a way to again like reinforce that they, you know, mm-hmm. perceive themselves as being a genderless spirit. Yeah. You have other things like they bathe daily, uh, which sounds like a weird thing to but, include. But like, but at the time, like, it. it no. And at the time, like, that represented, like, purity and, like, cleanliness. This is, which was, again, like, a very, like, divine, you know. Yeah, this was, this was what, like, powdered wigs were for. And oil. Right. You know, it was like, well, right. I'm kind of grungy, so. Right, right. Speaking of, uh, their hairstyle. Followers of the friend... Uh, imagined Jesus, you know, Christ as, you know, having like black hair that like curled to his neck or upon his shoulders and was parted at the top, which you will see in in photos that we have on our show notes of the friend strikingly similar to how the friend wore their hair in like in a very like evocative, specifically evoking this image of being like a divine messenger. And as we said earlier, like having uncovered hair was something that women didn't do at the time. But men didn't typically have really long hair either. So like even in like their hair was a symbol, you know, and men, especially wealthy men would wear powdered wigs. So you have someone having like uncovered natural hair, like their natural hair in a long style is both masculine and feminine at the same time. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, women, women apparently- in the- In the community even like washed the friend's feet and dried uh, and like- dried the friend's feet with their hair like the scene in in luke you know when when a sinful woman does so to christ right right i, I love i love his next part <laughs> that's like somebody tried to discredit the friend and their divinely beautiful hair by claiming to have peeped and seen the friend <gasps> washing their hair that's how it's so shiny and beautiful it's because they just they wash it. it they must not be from god it's like uh, friends what are you doing which just like yeah it sounds ridiculous like, to us because i'm like, like you're gonna try to defame someone the- because they bathe okay <laughs> because they wash their hair like okay yep. whatever it's pretty great <laughs> in terms of like their eating customs like the friend chose to eat alone or with a select group of you know followers in their inner circle which was an imitation of christ's last supper 
with his disciples, which of course was then used against the friend, either to call the friend like a pretentious, like aloof elitist who only had, you know, eight with a select few or whatever. Or, you know, people would argue that, you know, they were hiding like a secret, like excess and indulgence and larder, like the secret larder of all of these fancy foods that they only shared with their select followers. And, Mm. you know, they weren't actually austere and like living a plain lifestyle or whatever. Because again, people are assholes. The confidence and ease with which the friend navigated society and the kind of like fearlessness in preaching were, you know, more typical of what you would see of male preachers at the time. Yet, according to many stories about them, people still perceive them as being a, you know, you know, quote, woman preacher at some level, which, you know, likely says as much about their rigid gender definitions as anything. But it still speaks to, you know, society as a whole, not trying to live, you know, or speaks to the friend. It wasn't trying to like live as a man. You know, like it's as some people have tried to argue, they weren't trying to live as a man, but as something that is, again, neither male nor female. And society has misunderstood that in, you know, on both sides of the equation. And, you know, we would be, seems as good a place as any, we'd be remiss not to note how the claim to like the divine, like this being, like this otherworldly divine being, um, did like reinforce and like was used for kind of the westward expansion and colonialist mm-hmm. like impulses. It's part and parcel of, you know, as we mentioned before, society's larger belief that America was empty and ordained for their use. But like their their perception as being like this genderless, like divine being did play a role in the belief that they had a right to use the land for their purposes, even if they did purchase it. And even if they did have, you know, pleasant relationships with, with the native peoples. So like, we just want to make that clear. (laughs) Like we don't like for as interested, there are some really interesting and compelling things about their story, but we're not going to ignore the fact that like, even within those interesting and compelling things, like we're, are some really uncomfortable things. Mm -hmm. Like the way that being someone who, you know, considered themselves to be like a divine messenger would reinforce kind of their relationship with like colonizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. Yeah. The world. So. So. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about, you know, the friend themselves and their own, you know, expression of gender and divinity. But what we've really found super, super fascinating, especially from Larson, was talking about how this extended out to the community of the Society of Friends. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're going to dive a little bit into that in going into sort of our wrap-up. But one of the things that Scott Larson noted was that there was a creation of a new linguistic community with the friend. The followers of the friend not only refused to refer to the friend by Jemima Wilkins, or gendered pronouns, but they eschewed them in the community as well. They, quote, scrupulously avoided using any gendered pronouns to describe her, a decision that often led to torturous syntax, the, quote, convoluted pronoun-free language that passed for standard English among the universal friends, which, you know, if you can hear the sarcasm in my voice about, like, the convoluted blah blah blah. Yeah, you got the gushers now. Yeah, I've got the gushers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, like it it highlights how genderlessness and gender and a genderless nature performed ecclesiastical work, right? It created a a theological language and separated the community from outsiders. So like the language right. that somebody chose to describe the friend indicated whether someone was part of the community of the saved or part of that like wider wicked world. 
Mm-hmm. Even even people who were like in the community, you could you could tell their entries and their exits from the community by the way that they referred to the friend, right? Like in diary entries right. while in the community that Abner Brownwell refers to the friend as the friend. And then once he uh, published a denunciation of the friend, starts using her and Jemima. Mm. Yeah. Got this like code switching, like yes. in-group, out-group language. Yeah, it's so interesting. Yeah, like one traveler even, quote, met a woman and inquired civilly about where uh, where about Jemima Wilkinson's house was she replied that she knew no no such person the friend lived a little piece below (laughs) Mm. yes yeah right right i love this quote from larson yes it's my favorite the failure of gendered language broke the grammar of human categories performing the theological claim that the friend was an indescribable being this convoluted syntax actually provided a way for a whole group of people to practice gender differently speaking the future state of no longer male or female into time through the public universal friend. Genderless language acted as prophetic language, a sign of the world to come. Yeah, so it's like what you were talking about before, about how it like signals this this new understanding of life beyond gender. And when I was reading mm-hmm. this, it... it- super duper reminded me of this spoken word poet andrea gibson they have they have a lyric in one of their poems that says your pronouns haven't even been invented yet and like that's that's Mm. just and it's funny because like the person that i was talking to on the train you know a couple of days ago about this episode and about the podcast and about you know being a voluntary grad student was wearing a shirt that said my pronouns haven't even been invented yet from Andrea Gibson website. And I just like, and then to read this quote that same day, mm-hmm. it blew my freaking mind. Like, yep, yep. I love it. Ah, mm. Right. And there are so many interesting things to say about like the connection between like gender ambiguity and the supernatural in the 18th century England. And that's something we've like kind of talked around earlier, but just like gender ambiguity in dress and behavior I mean, it could be seen in multiple ways. It was either a marker and proof of a level of divinity or as evidence of terrible evil and the workings of the devil. And that's where we get all of these like various reactions that we mentioned earlier of like, you know, the person saying like Ruth saying, you know, they spoke as no man had spoke, Mm -hmm. followed by the other person who, you know, who makes it sound like they're, you know, evil because they have this, you know, grum tone to their voice, which (laughs) is, you know, demonic. You know, like there are like there were many who believed that that the friend was more than human, the messenger of truth, the divinely sent. There's a quote that says, um, it's in Larson, but it's an editorialist from the time period saying, there are some among us who appear to believe that she was something more than human, the messenger of truth, divinely sent. Others paint her as a downright devil in petticoats, artful, abandoned, libidinous, and wicked. I, I just, I love, I love devil in petticoats. Also, like, the fact that they assumed that the friend was wearing petticoats because they were, you know, obsessed with whatever right. they were wearing under their robe. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Right? Right? So, like, audiences were looking for theological truth in the friend's genderless presentation. Was this, was their genderlessness a sign that they were divine or diabolical? Um, ambiguous gender... Or the lack of gender was otherworldly in the signs of in the minds of 18th and 19th century Western European and American society. But that like otherworldliness could be monstrous as well as it could be like beautiful and divine. And and the friend's lack of gender conformity. I mean, also, this is another another point that like their lack of gender conformity could be viewed as a threat to not just like Mm -hmm. divine, like not just evil, but like a threat to 
the stability of the country because it was a, a manifestation of their lack of adherence to traditional authority structures. Yet another, you know, anti, you know, anti-Republican state, not the elephant, um, sentiment that sought to destabilize the country. And like, gee, where have you heard these kinds of arguments before? Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, this person, this person who is, you know, not cis, straight, white, and male is, a, you know, they're a threat because they don't do things the way that we want them to. They must be a threat to the country. Oh, no. They must want to completely upset the balance and do everything that we've been doing. That doesn't feel good. Yeah. Right. Right. Like, to call the friend Jemima Wilkinson, or she, was to deny the story of the friend's death and miraculous resurrection. Like, this was, like, as we as we talked about earlier, this was a theological statement. Like, these words that the people were using, that the community used, referring to the friend as the friend, eschewing gendered pronouns, was a statement of belief. Mm-hmm. Because the friend was not simply a person stating a deeply felt personal identity. The friend was a divine presence in the world, a spirit that entered the world at Jemima's departure and death. To refer to the friend was to engage with that spirit, to speak with the radical of a radical encounter with divinity. Like the use of this language represented one's belief. Mm-hmm. Which is so fascinating. Yeah. Like linguistic markers of like community and belief and faith and, you know, like it's all wrapped up together. It wasn't, it's not just a statement of their identity. It's a statement, it's a statement of a faith community. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a religious and theological claim. Yeah. I thought I, th- I thought it was really interesting because Scott Larson mentioned that it, you know mentioned a caveat that like you have to have the distinction that the experience of the friend specifically had genderlessness being a religious state you know like right. we could say that you know this was super revolutionary but also like that there's there wasn't really a lot of room or claim for different gender possibilities outside of a religious context right it was a state after mm-hmm. death it was unique because it happened after their death and resurrection and a giving up up of self rather than an assertion or an expression of like an identity right right and i thought it was really interesting because it connects with so many other cultures where there's like third gender or or expansive gender expressions that are are linked with some sort of spiritual context we talked about the hmm, priests in ancient egypt and when we talk about you know two-spirit traditions among native american and first peoples communities we'll get into it and other like gender variant like shamans in many pacific islander cultures there's this perception of like gender nonconformity being related to like mysticism and spirituality in some capacity, you know, in in many various ways. Right, right. Even if they all don't like conceive of that space being the same, mm-hmm. like it it all kind of does seem to be, re- or a lot of it does seem to be related to this like spiritual or like mystical state. Another, I mean, another interesting thing to point out is just how much the friends like conception of genderlessness, like it draws on these like Christian Gnostic traditions that argued that like there was. Like the fall of Adam that that most people will talk about is, you know, the eating of the fruit and then the expulsion from the garden. But in according to these Gnostic traditions, the first fall, Adam had a fall before then, and that was the splitting into being male and female. And that the redemption of, of humanity must be sought in a return to a like genderless and sexless, sexless meaning like lack of sexual desire. Hey, ace. Woo. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, a genderless and, like, asexual, like, state. So, like, the friend specifically, like, while we can talk about the friend as, like, challenging sexual and gender dimorphism, it does so in the context of, like, labeling both of them as a sign of fallen humanity. Yeah. Like, 
Well, um, I mean, it goes like to- that reminds me so much of like Plato and the concept right. of, you know, like that people were, you know, two two people put together a male and a female and then and and you know, even male and male and female and female and then like when the gods were mad at them, they split them down the middle. Mhm. Uh, right, right. So yeah, we can like see this you know, understanding of, like, gender is, like, a sign of, like, fallen human beings. Like, in the emphasis, like, it's related to the emphasis that the friend had on celibacy. Mm-hmm. As well as this desire to form a community outside of, like, the wicked world. Now, like, it, and it doesn't mean that the friend didn't, at the same time, like, it doesn't mean the friend didn't inadvertently create space for other people to find a voice. What we're trying to say here is, like, the friend wasn't specifically setting out to, like, challenge gender norms. <laughs> like, or but even specifically... <laughs> But they did. They did. And in their own unique way, you know, so for example of, you know, inadvertently creating space at the negotiation of the treaty of, oh, and I am even a linguist. Canadigua? Canadigua. Yeah. So the friend spoke in assembly. They prayed like they did like a a public prayer. Um, The next day, the friend had, you know, wasn't in the assembly anymore, wasn't in the council. Three Seneca women, so women from the Seneca tribe, appealed to speak to the council and their appeal was granted partially on the basis because they said this white woman was in here yesterday and she prayed therefore we ought to be able to speak to the assembly which i think it was pretty funny because like they were specifically were like this white woman went up and prayed about how we all need to repent so like you gotta let us fucking talk (laughs) it was like you let this white woman come up there and talk shit about us Right. And then they specifically turn <laughs> those, those words, words around and are like, white lady talked about how the native people need to repent. We're here to say that y'all white people need to repent of the horrible ways that you have mm-hmm. treated us. It's an interesting way to like, yeah. Uh, right. So it's just like this fascinating, like someone can not intentionally set out to challenge things and we can acknowledge that while also acknowledging that like the choice, like the things they did do did create space for that challenge from other people, even if that wasn't what they meant. And that's something that like the friend does like just by their existence. And, you know, even if their um, self-conceptualization is like different than what we would talk about, you know, and they believed that like gender was a sign of like sinfulness, just like all gender, doesn't mean that like the friend existing in this like genderless space can't be validating and empowering in other ways for people who might not agree with their perception of gender being evil you know we can find identity and validation in that even if you know the friend wouldn't have seen it that way they didn't set out to be like society like gender is a social construct um (laughs) but like we can look at them and be like hey look like there was space even within a society like early america for someone to you know understand themselves as having you know genderlessness and even if it's different than what we think of like you know it's interesting yeah so uh yeah we may yeah. we may not have a we may not have a word of the week but uh we have a super we've fun, got a fun factoid. factoid yeah i am related to the friend it's like actually like blood related to the friend and this was not something that we were like oh man you know it wasn't like gretchen was like hey so i'm no. related to this this really awesome person and we should do an episode on them no it was a discovery no. <laughs> it was a discovery so On my mom's side, we have, like, I have a lot of, like, family history and genealogy on my mom's side. Like, before, you know, the advent of, like, Ancestry.com and stuff, like, there's a book, um, which I plan on getting from my parents' house. My mom is a member of the DAR, which is the Daughters of the American Revolution. I never joined. Maybe someday I will. I don't know. But, like, I grew up knowing that I was related to two signers of the Declaration of Independence, 
Robert Morris and Stephen Hopkins and Meriwether Lewis, who didn't sign the Declaration of Independence, but Stephen Hopkins, you may recognize, we mentioned that name earlier in the podcast. Stephen Hopkins was the, f- the friend's father's first cousin. So the friend was related to Stephen Hopkins. I am related to Stephen Hopkins. That means I am related to the public universal friend. Yes. So like, I don't actually know how I, I don't remember how I'm related to Stephen Hopkins. I, I can't wait to, to see like when you go visit home and get to yes. dig up that genealogy. Yes. I'm going to dig up that genealogy and see what I find. It's just like, what are the chances? like that we pick someone for a queer history podcast and it's like oh they're my relative (laughs) yeah well i mean like like not nearly as as like whoa crazy you know coincidence but like it reminds me of like when i was going through my storage unit and randomly found that same poem that we had been talking about when we when we did cloistered queers about like medieval women's sexuality that i had zero memory of ever reading and it's like (laughs) what the hell i've read this before wait a minute we just talked about this on the podcast what the fuck I love it. Right? It's just so awesome when we have those moments, like, as part of this process of, like, reclaiming and bringing attention to, like, queer folks in history that we find out that, like, not only is it, like, conceptually our history, it's, like, literally our history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, literally. Um, I mean, and the chances are that, like, all of us are related to so many other queer people in history. We just don't know mm-hmm. because, you know, genealogical records. It's just, you know, cool that I happen to know. Yeah. A couple other fun things to check out uh, before we wrap up with our How Gay Were They ratings. There is a History Detectives episode, which we will link in our show notes, with about a document uh, related to the Society of Universal Friends. I haven't watched it yet, but I have I'm it gonna. opened as a tab <laughs> in my browser, and I'm totally going to watch it. Um, if you live near Yates County, New York, or find yourself there, uh, which is like south of Rochester on the western shore of Seneca Lake, you can visit the Scherer Carriage House Museum at the Yates County Historical Center, which is entirely dedicated to Jemima Wilkinson. Um, it even has like the friend's carriage that they used when they got older mm-hmm. and later in life and couldn't actually ride around on horseback. Yeah. And it has, um, I think it also has like their saddle and uh, the beaver right. hat and whole bunch yeah. and like other like paintings. It's, it's pretty cool. I want to go check it out. Yeah. 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 Next to like, I want, I want to too. I mean, I don't know when I'm going to be in that part of New York, but if I do we'll ever make, end up there. We'll, we'll uh, make a pilgrimage. Pilgrimage. Uh, yes. uh, perfect. All right. So uh, finally. Gretchen, how gay were they? How gay were they? Um, and again, gender, we, by gay, we mean gender nonconforming, um, genderless, non-binary, all of that. I, I mean, this is like a solid, like, like obvious, like 10 out of 10. Though, like, I will say part of what's, you know, part of what is intriguing to me is that this does seem to exist outside of even, you know, like what we would think of as like trans identity. So like it, it, it isn't as if this was like a resolution of a long-term struggle with gender identity. It really does seem to be like a, you know, it's spiritual experience. So it's very unique that like the friend blurred the distinction between male and female, but in a completely like unique spiritual way that like neither denied nor erased their like identity prior to their illness while simultaneously affirming like a new person post illness. Like it's, it's like hard to situate that in the modern language that we have. Mm -hmm. And I find that fascinating. Yeah, I thought like being that like the idea of like genderlessness being like a religious state mm-hmm. or like one of like my big takeaways from this is, is you know, what Larson Larson mentions, like gender is produced and challenged differently in different times and places. Just it was it was something know. like explicitly unique to that time period and the influence right. of of belief systems that were going around and made space for being able to, you know, 
be mm-hmm. a spirit in uh, the body of somebody and not instantly be, you know, relegated to, you know, to an institution. And right. it, it created right. space to say, oh, hey, this, you know, obviously there were detractors, but it had validity and it, mm-hmm. it created that open space. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, How about you? I went I went 10 out of 10 as well. You know, it's somewhere in some sort of non-binary gender experience. And I think I think it's interesting, too, because, like, you know, you, you say that, like, there's no evidence of, like, a long-term struggle. The, the, one, the one thing that I thought about is, like, that one stupid source who, like, you know, said it was, like, an emotional breakdown, not, like, typhoid fever. Um, I mean, as much as I, like, you know, immediately am dismissing that, like, I wonder if, you know, if there are other sources that are, like, talking about it, like, an emotional breakdown. Like, maybe this was, like, a way to make sense of something like that. If it had if it had had any sort of right. you know if there had been any sort of internal struggle and this is the way to conceptualize it and this is the way to right. legitimize yeah, it you know and mm-hmm. there's no way to know that there's that this is you know right. modern speculation of you know how does somebody who experiences life outside of a binary experience makes sense of this makes sense of this when there's no language right. for it makes sense of this when there's no space for it but uh, yeah i also am like super super fascinated in the idea of this being a distinctly religious experience and that making room for other things and i was i was right. particularly just struck by what you had said in you know in our outline during your rating portion about how that 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 it like it never denied or erased their identity before their illness and like created a new identity which you know we'll get into this person but like Lily Elb um who mm. was like one of you know was like one of the first people to get like a like to get uh, an attempt at sexual reassignment surgery was like she she was a trans woman who was who was supposedly like reborn like born as a completely different person inhabiting Einar Wegener's body and that they like mm-hmm. essentially shared one body and mind and were completely different people and and it came out of like Einar dressing up in like women's clothing to be a photo model for his like wife or his partner and then it developed into this like lily personality and then einar and lily like both decided okay well only one of us can continue to go forward and let lily like totally free and be born after like an attempted surgery um so i thought it was really Mm. interesting that like this this not only this experience of this outside of this gender binary experience but like a multiplicity of identities within gender that like you know Mm -hmm. you saw how we used she and her pronouns for jemima before this reawakening because you know they continually talk about like it this spirit embodying or inhabiting the body that was formerly jemima wilkinson it never you know it's it's i don't know it's just i don't know where to go with it but it's really fascinating right Um, right that like this Jemima Wilkinson existed as a person. Yeah. Like it's never a like, you know, oh, I've, oh, I've realized that like Jemima Wilkinson should never have existed mm-hmm. or just like, it's just that fascinating, like Jemima, like I am no longer Jemima Wilkinson. Mm-hmm. Jemima Wilkinson has died and I, the friend, now exist in the body of what once was Jemima Wilkinson. Yeah. It's just such an interesting, like, yeah. yeah and I, well, and I also like that, you know, like to deny the friend's existence as a genderless being was to deny this to deny the spiritual element and like when you can't legally accuse somebody of blasphemy where do you go from there you know right right <laughs> it's great right yep and just like the absolute like there was no ambiguity when the friend like arrived <laughs> arrived Boom. like Hello. there was it was just like Jemima Wilkinson had a fever and then the friend woke up and was like 
Sup, guys. Okay, so I'm the friend now. <laughs> Jemima Wilkinson has died, and I am now the public universal friend. God, like, I wish just that, like, like I, guess, I just, I wish that everybody's, like, gender transition could be that, right? right? To just, like, just, just have a moment of clarity and decision and be able to go out in the world and say, hey, this is who I am now. Refer to me by this. And have everybody be like, I, I mean, you know. Right, like, that's what's so, like, beautiful about the story is, like, yeah, like, Though there were the detractors. Like, yeah, of course there were the detractors. But you can still get a huge following of people to, like, go and live in a fun, happy, utopia community until some rich white cis And it started with their family. Yeah. Like, how beautiful is that? That, like, their family was a significant part of, you know, the process. Like, the, the first followers, the first people to be like, right, yep, yep, you are the friend. We will not use gendered pronouns. This is who you are. We will was, we will leave our entire family. we will leave our entire faith and everything right. we know behind because we support you. God, uh, if anyway. only queer experience could be like that. Yes. Oh my gosh, ah, I love it. Ah. Oh man. Yep. All right. Well, uh, I mean, we have thoroughly exhausted this topic. I think. <laughs> I mean, there's always more to say, uh, and we will have a long list of sources. Unfortunately, several of them are behind the paywall of JSTOR, but we will link them to you. Um, and if, you know, there are those of you who are lucky enough to be involved with some sort of institution that you can get behind a paywall, get them, share them with your friends, right. you know, more knowledge for everybody. Yep. And so with that, yep. that's it for today's episode. You can find your lovely hosts online individually. Where can they find you, Gretchen? Well, when I am not talking about non-binary religious leaders from history I'm related to, I am writing nerdy media analysis and fangirling over queer young adult novels, Star Wars, and Steven Universe for thefandamentals.com and my personal website, gnellis.com. Or you can find me on Tumblr and Twitter as at gnelliswriter. How about you? And I'm Lee. When I'm not nerding out about really awesome queer theory and queer history articles by people that I want to marry. I'm usually (laughs) talking about comics, queer TV over at A Paradox in Flux on Twitter, usually crying about some sort of Xena episode. Uh, I'm going to the Xenite retreat next month. I'm really excited. If any of you happen to be going to the Xenite retreat, I'll see you there. Um, Oh, and speaking of uh, events coming up, uh, I am going to be at Clexicon. I am going to be doing a couple of panels there. I'm doing one called The Responsibility of Media Makers, one called Khorasami is Still a Breath of Fresh Air, and I will be moderating the Neurodiversity in Writing panel. And if you, I mean, if you are at Clexicon, you can come to my panels or just find me um, hanging around. Gretchen's going to have have some swag. Right. (laughs) <laughs> yep, I will. Yes, I will have buttons and magnets. Um, at least one of the days that I am there, I will be wearing my, you know, purple history is gay shirt. Um, and if I'm not wearing that, I will I will have a big button on my my bag with me that says history is gay. I'll be hanging around the Fandamentals booth or Glorious Weirdos booth, who is, you know, the lovely Beth who made our swag or the TGI booth. So I'll be around hanging out. Come say hi. Yay. It'll be great. Yeah. Um. Uh- History is Gay podcast can be found on Tumblr at History is Gay podcast, Twitter at at History is Gay pod, 
And you can always drop us a line with questions, suggestions, or just to say hi at historyisgaypodcast at gmail.com. You can also uh, send us an email straight through our website as well. And if you're enjoying the show, remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It helps more people find the show, and it keeps getting us this awesome, wonderful community we get to tell all of these cool queer stories to. I know! Yay! So, that's it for History is Gay. Until next time... Stay queer and stay curious. Bye.